What a joy to be opening up God's Word with you today. We're back in our series called Doors in the Life of Faith. And this morning we're going to have an addendum, a, a part two to last week's message. Last week we ta- looked at a, we called it Temple Doors and Closet Doors. And this is a little addition. And we're going to, I'm titling it, A Life with God Behind Closed Doors. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we will be this morning. Well, if you were with us last week, we got nerdy and we closely examined the doors that led to the inner sanctuary of the Jerusalem temple. And we looked at the architecture and the decoration and we discovered that in that Old Testament building, all of that came together to warn the approaching worshiper. It says, caution, beware, holiness ahead. Behind these doors, you will find the presence of the living God, the consuming fire of His goodness, burning white and pure. So these temple doors were a warning. But then we had to square that warning with the New Testament's encouragement in Hebrews 4.16 to then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So how did we get from the prophet's cry, which was, woe is me, I am ruined, to Hebrews' version, which is, hey, Papa, can we talk? I need help. And we discovered that the answer is Jesus. He is the great high priest. He is the one who's mediated for us a way through the doors into God's perfect presence. And it is His sacrificial and substitutionary death on our behalf that has restored the relationship, that has reconciled us to our Creator. You see, it's on account of Jesus' advocacy and His provision that we can know God as our Father. And we can come to Him with full assurance of faith as His beloved kids. It enables us to hear with new ears Jesus' invitation in the Gospels. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him. And then we ended last week looking at Scripture's humblest door, the closet or or pantry door, and how Jesus transforms life's most ordinary doorway into a portal, granting us access to God Himself. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. So what does it mean for us to have a life with God behind closed doors? We're going to tarry at that simple door and explore what Jesus has to teach us. So let's dig in together to Matthew chapter 6. It begins like this. 
Jesus is instructing his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then dropping down to 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their, their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what is Jesus doing? He's juxtaposing the stage and the secret place. The performative and the private. The word hypocrite originally referred to a theatrical performer. An actor in a Greek play who wore a mask pretending to be someone or something he was not. This performer would display or embody something externally for the purpose of thrilling or amusing or edifying or scandalizing that did not necessarily match who they were internally. I remember I was going to seminary in Los Angeles, and there was a somewhat well-known comedic actor, Tony Hale, who would pop into Fuller's Seminary Library every week to prep the Bible study that he would teach at his church's small group. And when I told Brianna, she could not process that he was a believer because my bride gets immersed in the drama when she's watching television and she sees only the characters, not the actors who portray them. And because she couldn't imagine Buster Bluth, a character that she could not stand leading Bible study, she had dissonance accepting that the man behind the mask was a spiritual brother. You see, Jesus contrasts the image of a performer on a stage and pressing and winning the applause of his audience with the picture of a man who has shut himself inside of a walk-in pantry or closet to talk with God. You'll remember I said last week that privacy, it was this rare commodity in the ancient world. Everyone lived in tight-knit villages with closely situated homes. They were in these multi-generational households. There was no fences. Everyone left their door open. So if you wanted to avoid prying eyes... Uh, you had very few options. You could, one, wake up before dawn and wander 
the desolate wilderness on the outskirts of the village, or you could retreat into your home's inner sanctum, which is not nearly as glorious as it sounds, because most houses had these open floor plans and they had exactly one interior door, and it led to a storage area. Go into your room and shut the door. Is Jesus telling us to kind of be closeted about our faith? Aren't we supposed to be public about our allegiance to Jesus, right? Giving witness to who He is and what He's done and what He is doing even now and will do to make all things new. You may want to accuse Jesus of contradicting Himself. Because only one chapter earlier, He said these words, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do we reconcile that with beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them? I'll admit it is confusing. Shine your light before others so that God gets the glory, but live your life of faith in secret for your Father's eyes only laboring for His reward alone. There's a scholar that's far smarter than me, Dale Bruner, who puts it this way. He says, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught mainly mercy. Chapter 6 teaches mainly faith. Chapter 5 taught the what of the Christian life. Chapter 6 teaches the how. It is important that persons not only do what is right, but that they do it in the right way. Righteousness that is overly conscious of itself, love impressed with its sacrifice, mercy seeking attention, or purity done for show are all unrighteous. The commands of chapter 5 dealt mainly with actions. The devotions of our chapter deal mainly with intentions, though these intentions express themselves in actions. One of our guys at men's groups also had an interesting insight. The giving to the needy, prayer, fasting of chapter 6, those are all acts that would be naturally celebrated in that culture. For they were the basic aspects of, of Jewish piety. They were seen to be summarizing one's relationship with God. They were a demonstration of one's steadfast trust in God and the three primary relationships of life. In your relationship with others, generosity. In your relationship with God, prayer. And in your relationship with yourself, fasting. So in those days, doing those things out in public would earn you respect, credibility, acclaim. Now in contrast, what Jesus talks about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, disarming your anger with forgiveness, resisting lust, Sticking it out in a cold and difficult marriage. Blessing those who curse you. Not resisting an evil person who smacks you in the face. Those were culturally bizarre, even scandalous acts that would get you no applause out in public. People would see you as weak or stupid or peculiar. And so counterintuitively, when the good of it was recognized, all the glory would go to God. One more quote from our biblical scholar guy. It is right to do the unspectacular good work of chapter 5, control of anger and lust, etc., 
in such a way that when people see them, they think of God. It is wrong to do the more privately intended good works of chapter 6, charity, prayer, and fasting, in such a way that people will notice them. You see, I would distill it down this way. Jesus seeks friends and disciples who lovingly abide. Not influencers and performers who dramatically display. The former thrill to commune with God as they seek to faithfully keep in step with His will. The latter draw attention as they yearn for validation, needing praise and affirmation from others to kind of uphold their sense of worth and self. Now don't get me wrong, we were made to want notice. What's the constant refrain of a little kid? Watch me, watch me, right? Now as we get older, the childlike watch me becomes the adults more unspoken, but equally profound, notice me. And our drive to be noticed is not necessarily a consequence of our brokenness. It's an echo of divine intent. It's part of the image of God in us. There's an old Fuller professor that was wont to say this, we were made to notice and be noticed by God, to imagine and image His pleasure. We long to be noticed But whose notice do we long for? Not to get all psychological on you, but before I came to Pastor Elam, I was a family pastor at two different churches in California. And as I was a family pastor, one of the things that would regularly break my heart is when you would see a kid or a teen who could not get the attention of their either, you know, overworked or self-absorbed or distracted parent. They couldn't get their parent to notice them. So what do they do? They go out and do increasingly reckless and stupid and provocative things to garner the attention of their kind of knucklehead classmates. Right? Unable to get the notice that their heart desired, the attention of their parents, They settle for a lesser reward. And Jesus here, he too speaks of better and lesser rewards. He invites us to choose. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. They have received their reward. Jesus is using this strong, vivid Greek verb. It's a pecho. It's a term that's derived from the world of commerce. It means to receive a sum in full full, and get a receipt for it. So Jesus is implying that those who practice rhythms of right living and step with God's will will receive a reward. But one must choose what reward you would like to redeem. Will you do it for the praise of people 
to win respect and earn influence, or we will do it for the pleasure of God and for his glory. If you choose the former, your reward, the return will be immediate. But that's all the reward you'll ever get. So say you have a talent or a passion and ability to teach or sing or love on and engage with kids. Maybe you have the resources to give. And you would choose to invest your gift in such a way that you're being a blessing, you're serving your local church, you're building up the body of Christ. We often call these thankless tasks, which I don't actually think that they are. But you must decide your reward. Will you yearn for human affirmation and praise? For your contributions to be recognized, celebrated, and appreciated? Or will you seek to kind of convert your righteous service into standing in the eyes of your community? Or will you opt for what Jesus regards as greater? A smile on the face of your Father, the joy that comes from partnering with Him in His work, and the expectation of a future commendation. Those who call ministry thankless have betrayed the fact that they have chosen the lesser reward. And it's not that we don't show appreciation and say thank you, but something that is rewarding if you're choosing the wrong reward will be less rewarding than it should be. Or say maybe, let's use this example, Say you and your spouse are going through a difficult season and you're frustrated with how your honey is navigating it. They've been too anxious or too dependent on their own uh, power and savvy to find a solution or, or maybe just too checked out. And you think you need to model for them trusting God. So you become more performative in your quiet times, more public about what you're saying no to in the season. I need, I'm not watching TV tonight. I need to be present to the Lord. You need them to see and possibly be inspired to do the same. So your prayers together become more preachy, more directed at them than at God. And guess what? It might help. It might chasten your struggling spouse. You might make it through the end of the trial and your partner would turn to you and say, you know what? Thank you for being our family's spiritual rock. And there you have it. You've cashed in your reward. Paid in full, God owes you nothing. You see, the reward you choose will be determined by what has captured your heart. Notice how love sits at the very center of this passage. What has captured your heart? Do you love to see and be seen by others, or do you love to see and be seen by God? Jesus beckons us to choose the greater reward. He beckons us to commune with God in the secret place, to know God, to love and be loved by God behind closed doors, which he says is far greater. And it actually brings to mind a, a song we used to sing in college. In the secret, in the quiet place, in the stillness, you are there. It goes on. In the secret, in the quiet hour I wait, only for you, 
because I want to know you more. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you, God, more. So what would it look like for us to have a relationship with God behind closed doors? One that's not mediated by a pastor or a spouse or a small group. And I believe here in this passage, Jesus trains us in our first steps. This is what I can identify. Step number one, he says, find your and God's secret place. Discover both, I think, its place its physical place, and its time. Right? Jesus is our example in this. While he liked the metaphor of the closet door, I think his secret place with his father was actually more outside than inside. We read in Luke, but Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Matthew, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. We even see him in Mark training his disciples in this rhythm. Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He met with his father secretly, privately, out in the wilderness. And his times of communion were often after dusk or before dawn. And I think the reason many people get up early in the morning to meet with God is not because mornings are intrinsically holier, but because they're unsocial hours. Times when the demands of work or family are lesser, or at least seen as culturally inappropriate. Most people won't call you before seven or after nine, right? These are unsocial hours. So find your and God's secret place. Some thoughts. It could be your morning walk with the dogs around your neighborhood. Right? It could be sitting in your car before you get out and go to work. Sitting in the parking lot in that quiet, in that private meeting with God. It could be when you're swimming laps in the pool. It could be when you sneak home for lunch to let the dogs out. It could be sitting on your porch in the swing as you wait for the bus to drop off your kids. There's nothing about the kind of place that makes it special. What makes it special, the space is made special by the intentionality and the consistency of your communion in His presence in that place. So you want a life with God behind closed doors? Find your and God's secret place for this season. Step two is shut the door. Limit distractions. Blaise Pascal, the French Christian philosopher, said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Limit distractions. This is why we train our kids to pray with their eyes closed. Right? As you go to have this relationship with God behind closed doors, turn off the stream of stimuli and words, even godly Christian words, turn it off. You see, our retreat from life's busyness and bustle is instrumental in opening up our lives and our souls to Him for whom we were made. 
It makes space for us to know Jesus and enjoy Him. So find your secret place and shut the door. Step three, I think, from this passage surprises me. Stop evaluating, assessing, and replaying. Just abide and obey. Jesus said in verse three, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You think, I, I think sometimes we have this unhealthy need to process because we have an unhealthy need to understand and control. And so Jesus invites us to be unselfconscious and self-forgetful in our life of faith, to simply abide and obey as we join Christ on the adventure. Not constantly wrestling with the implications or the cost, not trying to discern the exact right thing, not pondering what will be the impact or how things will be received. Just abide and obey. Now, I do believe Jesus invites us to vent our emotions, to express our confusion, to to voice our questions to him in his presence. But communing with God in our secret place is often less about us working out our stuff and more about connecting with him and resting in him as he works out our stuff, even without our knowledge or understanding. So find your and God's secret place. Shut the door. Stop evaluating, assessing, replaying. And then I think step four from this passage is forsake the stage and the applause of men. Jesus says this in John 5, I do not receive glory from people. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, Jesus doesn't ask us to perform for him. He asks us to be his beloved children and friends. Indeed, he tells us that seeking the praise of people will prevent real faith in our hearts. It will prevent us from knowing the glory of our Father's pleasure, from reveling in his notice. Listen to this from Hebrews 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is drawing near, knowing that he's in that secret place, waiting to commune from us, commune with us. And it's knowing that he rewards his kids. Forsake the stage and the applause of men. And then I think step five is this. Choose to cherish God in his affirmation above all else. Our heavenly rewards are not mansions in heaven, but God himself is our reward. True bliss is to know and be known by God, to move through this life and the next in intimate fellowship with him. 
Jesus says in John 17, and this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This is all that it's about. About knowing God. And it's not just a future thing. It's a now thing. You can go into your closet and you can have one-on-one communion with God where he can minister to you, where he can speak to you in the quietness of your heart, where he can speak through his word, where he can speak through a song, where he can comfort, where he can give peace. The throne room of heaven has been opened to us and Jesus beckons us to know God and to be known by him in the secret place. To have a life with God behind closed doors. We often settle for less. But God even now has made himself available to you. So walk through life in relationship with your creator. Experience life with God as your father. Jesus has made the way. So often, we leave him behind the closed door in the secret place, right? He, he's waiting, and we don't show up. We've settled for lesser when the God of the universe is there. So let's have a life that's not just in community, but that is also with him behind closed doors. Amen? Let's pray. God, it's, we don't, sometimes we don't know God. It's hard to, to comprehend that you want to know us and that we can know you. It's hard to take the risk to, to seek your face because we don't think we're worthy or we're too distracted or, or a million reasons. But God, you are our model in all things. And even though you are a member of the Trinity, you had perfect communion with your Father, you showed us that even in a busy, full life of ministry and public service, God, you met your Father in the secret place. And that was your source of both reward and energy and power. And may we not go through life neglecting that. May we not go through life settling for less. Teach us to abide. May we meet you in that secret place and know eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.